From dancing videos to national security risks, experts say social media sensation TikTok is helping the Chinese military develop artificial intelligence. In this special report, we look at how U.S. companies are boosting China's military growth, how Americans' data is feeding China's AI mills, and how microchips are at the heart of it all. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Data has become the new oil. It's what every country is trying to get their hands on. Data has become the new strategic commodity of the 21st century. That it will be as, as important and as decisive in who is it that prevails in the, in the geopolitical contest between the United States and China, between the free world and what I call the new axis, China, Russia, Iran and North Korea. That's Arthur Herman, senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and director of the Quantum Alliance Initiative. But why is data such a big deal? Herman notes that's what fuels AI and other machine learning programs. The more data they get, the more accurate they become. And so if you've got an AI chip which allows you to speed up the process so you can move through the data faster and faster. He mentioned the term AI chip. Microchips or semiconductors are what are found in electronics, from phones to computers to cars. But as to what an AI chip actually is... Basically what they do are they're accelerants. They accelerate the running of AI applications and machine learning programs. There are three main types. First up, graphic processing units or GPUs. Since so much of what happens with AI is about, let's say, visual recognition, uh, the, the use of graphics, the use of images. Advanced uh, graphic processing units are extremely useful for that and an important part of your, of your AI driving package. The second type are called application-specific integrated circuits. Basically what you have is the applications contained in the chip itself. In other words, you don't run the program through a series of other chips, you know, random access memory or, uh, or, or digital processing units. It's, it's actually contained in the chip itself. Not just AI, but it could be other types of applications. And the third type are known as field programmable gateway arrays. It's like a blank slate. You could put in the program that you need into it so it runs that program specifically uh, when you need it uh, and when it's required. But the thing about AI chips is they aren't used exclusively for AI applications. A new report from the Center for Security and Emerging Technology at Georgetown University found that nearly all of the chips China's military ordered were designed by U.S. companies. Those companies include NVIDIA, Xilinx, now called AMD, Intel, and MicroSemi. To find those numbers, researchers scoured publicly available purchasing records from China's military, formerly known as the People's Liberation Army, or PLA. Those records stretch over eight months, from April to November 2020. The report found 97 unique high-end artificial intelligence chips ordered by the PLA. None of those came from Chinese companies. All were made in America. 
But in terms of military use, how does China use these chips? For the most part, the military does not use the most advanced state-of-the-art chips. What you have in your, if you have a recent model uh, iPhone or Android, that has much more sophisticated chips in, in it than go into a jet fighter, for example. David Goldman, deputy editor at Asia Times, notes. The military tends to use older chips, and it's, there are a great many out there and many ways of getting them. So for the vast majority of military applications, stopping China from buying the top-of-the-line ships is not going to make a great difference. Herman adds. In terms of an actual attack, I think it's less important than being able to understand American intentions uh, depending on what China move, moves China makes against Taiwan. So in other words, what you're able to do with your AI applications, right, is to understand if we do A, how will the Americans respond? And the AI programs give you more and more accurate picture of how the U.S. will respond to certain types of moves. China has taken advantage of what's considered the gray area meaning acting aggressively without crossing the line into an all-out war. For instance, sending scores of fighter jets into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. Herman notes AI plays an important role in that. And in order for the Chinese to decide about how to conduct, let's say, a low-intensity conflict of this kind, they'll want to know what are the Americans going to do. And AI programs will help them to understand what the Americans will do, how the, how the Taiwan government is going to respond, how U.S. allies in the region, like Japan or like Australia, might respond in those situations. But he says it's important to know that when it comes to AI... AI is not a mysterious process. It's just another type of computing. It's another way in which you take large amounts of data feed it into your program, into the algorithms that make up your program, okay? Uh, and then you generate pattern recognition. But given that artificial intelligence needs mountains of data, where is the Chinese regime getting the huge amounts needed to run its applications? One source is TikTok. People using TikTok don't convey classified data or sensitive data. Uh, or the kinds of things that we usually think about when we think about people stealing secrets, right, or getting, getting information about an antagonist. Now, what good is all this data about dancing teens and other content on TikTok really doing the Chinese regime? What it does do is provide more data, more information about how Americans behave and how, how TikTok users and their friends and their likes and dislikes all feed into an overall picture of what Americans are doing and about how Americans and uh, uh, Americans make decisions and and where the where the stress points are in American society that China needs to be aware of. And AI runs on data. The more, the better, whether classified or not. These are the kinds of things that make AI uh, a useful tool. So if you can speed that process up make it process even more data faster, that's a big advantage, particularly if you're using AI for strategic purposes. And that's exactly what the Chinese have been doing for the last decade. You know, they have set their sights on becoming the first AI-driven national surveillance state in which all, virtually every organ of government and society 
is either driven by or overseen by artificial intelligence applications. So for the Chinese, getting access to these chips is hugely important. Given the importance of these AI chips, what can be done? Herman offers up a two-pronged approach. Number one is we've got to alert our allies also to this problem and make sure that, that when we do sell uh, AI chips to them and to other countries, that the end user doesn't wind up being China. As for the next step. The second requirement I think that we really need to address in this is to think about our own AI policy. That's because whether we like it or not, AI is here to stay. I mean, AI is a, it's a, it's an ever-present technology now. Everybody's got programs, everybody's got companies that work in the AI, in the AI space today. When it comes to protecting that space and the microchips needed to run it, one question that comes up is the issue of export control laws. What the United States has tried to do recently is to hold back China's development of its own chip-making capacity. The United States has a great deal of intellectual property in chip manufacturing equipment. And to make a chip, there are a dozen types of different machines, each of which may have a hundred different technologies in it. It's the most incredibly complex and difficult thing that human beings have ever done by the way of manufacturing. Yeah, it's that right now. China has been scrambling to try to develop its own chip-making industry, but it's still very much dependent on imported equipment, particularly from the Netherlands and the United States last week asked the Netherlands to place yet additional restrictions on exports to China. But even if the U.S. is successful in convincing countries not to sell chips to China, part of the issue goes back to earlier, that many of these chips the military uses aren't the cutting-edge chips that are embargoed, but rather older generation versions. Those chips don't have any export control laws. At the same time, we don't want to have China taking advantage of poor export laws and using our own technology against us. That's a nightmare that no American policymaker and no American should want to have happen. Herman also brings up another point. And one of the important points in a larger sense is, is that by selling the, these units, these chips to China, we're actually helping the enemy, <laughs> an antagonist, to develop ways in which to interpret the data that they either take or steal from the United States to build their own strategic purposes. He goes on to point out the tricky situation facing export control laws. You don't want to be in a situation where you're uh, denying uh, friendly countries or even neutral countries chips that are part of their perfectly legitimate AI applications and the way in which they work in the commercial area or the government. One of the main strategies to combat it boils down to perspective. We have to immediately realize is that China is not only way ahead of us in terms of developing AI as an important tool for government and for uh, understanding its antagonists, its main antagonist, namely the United States, they're also thinking about AI as an important technology in a strategic way. And we need to spend more time thinking about that as well. But it's not all bad news. Goldman notes. The United States has a lead in intellectual property 
The chip was invented in the United States at Bell Labs, and all of its important developments came from the United States. But unfortunately, we only have about 12% of the world's chip manufacturing capability. If the manufacturing capability isn't here, then where is it? And the top machines out there don't come from the United States. They come from the Netherlands, particularly from a company called ASML even though a lot of American intellectual property is embedded in these inventions. To build top-of-the-line chips, the most advanced, we've asked Samsung and a TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor, to come to the United States and build plants here. That's still in progress. Yeah, the U.S. is taking steps to change that. Now, Congress proposed, and both parties agreed to, a bill to uh, subsidize domestic chip manufacturing by about $52 billion. That somehow got stuck in Congress. No one seems to know why, but that should be unstuck. We certainly should subsidize this industry, which is the key to the modern economy, whether it's civilian or military. Goldman suggests we need to take a similar approach to what Beijing is doing. China's put well over $100 billion into subsidizing its own domestic chip industry. You can't hold them back forever, no matter what you do. Even if you stop them buying machines, they can hire the people who make the machines and eventually figure it out. All you can do is be better than they are. But it's not just the chip manufacturing sector. Herman adds the U.S. needs to change its view of the AI industry as a whole. And realize just how valuable these little tiny microchips really are for for our understanding of the future. But it's not just a shift in how we view AI. I think we're going to have to start thinking about data in a different way. And I think right now we think about it as something which is a kind of byproduct of transactions of all kinds, whether it's transactions on our phones or whether it's business transactions or data that's simply generated about, you know, uh, everyday activities such as traffic patterns, um, what uh, airline flights, all of that kind of thing, that the data is a kind of byproduct that we pack up and store away uh, and wait for some day in which we can sort of, uh, you know, throw some of it away, clean it out as it gets to be old and obsolete. It's the wrong way to think about data. He notes if there's a conversation about export control on AI chips, we also need one for data. The Department of Commerce has an entire list, it's called the U.S. Munitions List, of commodities and products which can't be sold to certain kinds of countries, including China, because it's considered too dangerous to do so. Well, I think the time has come for us to think about putting certain types of data on such a list and say, this is data which does not leave our country, does not leave our shores, uh, because it is important, not just classified and and sensitive, but also because it's this valuable grist for AI mills that are turning 24-7 in China, in Russia, and other other hostile countries uh, that's being used against us. But if there isn't a fundamental shift in awareness when it comes to machine learning and also our own data, experts warn. We are going to find ourselves in a very serious situation where a technology we originated, machine learning and artificial intelligence comes out of American labs and American companies is used decisively against us by our worst enemies. 
that's not a situation we want to be want to be caught up in. And we need to think about that in a very serious way starting now. Given that data is now all the rage, experts also say that we need to safeguard not just individual privacy, but also the protection of the nation's future. Otherwise, they warn Americans' data may be the key to helping adversaries like the Chinese regime fuel their machine learning programs to the next stage. And where Americans' data becomes what helps bad actors win the next major war. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says China is now a major creditor for Sri Lanka. She warns that it's in both countries' best interests for China to participate in restructuring Sri Lanka's debt. Here's more on that situation. China is, of course, a very important creditor of Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is clearly unable to repay that debt, and it's my hope that China will be willing to work with Sri Lanka to restructure the debt. Yellen's remarks came on the sidelines of a meeting among G20 finance officials in Bali, Indonesia. Sri Lanka owes China at least $5 billion. According to the International Monetary Fund, India and Japan also each lent more than $3.5 billion to the country. It owes another $1 billion to other rich countries. As of May, Sri Lanka's international debt totaled more than $50 billion. This was caused by years of heavy government borrowing and tax cuts worsened by the COVID-19 pandemic. Yellen also noted that China has failed to cooperate while G20 countries helped heavily indebted countries weather the pandemic. On debt restructuring for those countries, Yellen said she would urge other G20 members to put pressure on China. Sri Lanka's geopolitical value has not only brought opportunities, but also China's attention. By expanding its control in the Indo-Pacific region, China absorbed Sri Lanka into its Belt and Road Initiative. Because of that, Beijing has become the country's biggest lender. Next, we take a closer look at how Sri Lanka found itself in that situation and how it might dig itself out from under a mountain of debt. Sri Lanka is located at a crucial junction deep within the Indo-Pacific region. First of all, let's look at its transportation value. A port in the country called Hambantota sits less than 10 miles away from one of the world's busiest shipping routes and oil transport routes. The path links two of the world's most important oil transit choke points, the Strait of Hormuz and the Strait of Malacca. What's more, it's a deep-water seaport, making it an ideal harbor for large warships. The value of that geography has drawn Chinese attention. Beijing wasn't subtle about its interest in the port either. A former Sri Lankan official told the New York Times that Chinese officials had said they expected Sri Lanka to let them know who is coming and stopping there. On top of its prime location, Sri Lanka is just a few hundred miles away from the shores of India, a major rival to China. In 2014, China looped Sri Lanka into its Belt and Road Initiative, a controversial project that critics call Beijing's debt trap diplomacy. Under the initiative, the Chinese regime offers billions of dollars in loans to developing countries earmarked for building up their infrastructure. But when countries fail to pay back the money, the regime takes control of their strategic assets, like ports that could prove useful for military purposes. In Sri Lanka's case, 
Beijing funneled billions of dollars into the country to help build up the Hambantota port. But the South Asian country was later forced to hand over control of the port to China on a 99-year contract after it failed to pay back its Chinese debt. Fast forward to today. Sri Lanka is facing a debt crisis, but some countries are lending a hand. Washington announced $120 million in grants for small and medium-sized enterprises in Sri Lanka. G7 member nations also voiced plans to help relieve Sri Lanka's debts. Neighboring India offered even more financial help. India has pledged over $4 billion in loans. It's also mulling over the possibilities of additional support, like a 500 million credit line for fuel. Comments from an international affairs expert may shed light on India's generosity. He says the country hopes to decrease Beijing's hold on Sri Lanka. This year's Wimbledon tennis tournament closed on Sunday for another year. The men's final, plus some previous matches, saw protests by a group of human rights activists asking about the whereabouts of Chinese tennis star Peng Shuai. Earlier, NTD's David English spoke with one of the protesters, human rights activist Drew Pavlo. Pavlo led the Where is Peng Shuai campaign at the Australian Open and flew to the UK to share the message at Wimbledon. He told us more about the situation surrounding the former Wimbledon women's doubles champion. She's a very famous tennis star. Um, she's been touring across the world, playing in all Grand Slams. And um, last year, when she made an allegation against China's vice premier involving uh, rape and sexual assault, her social media was scrubbed clean. And she was basically, um, her, her existence was basically wiped clean from the internet in China. Um, she basically disappeared for a number of weeks. When she reappeared, um, she was in these very concerning staged videos that appeared to be almost like hostage-like videos. Where do you think Pang is now and what do you think is, is her situation? She's not able to speak freely to this day. We don't know the exact nature of her conditions because the Chinese government is so opaque. We don't know much about what happens when the Chinese Communist Party tries to disappear people. Um, so you were at the, the men's final on Sunday and you got up, you said something and then the security came over. I just wanted to hold up silently a sign that said, where is Peng Shui? And as soon as I picked up that sign and I tried to hold it up, security basically tackled me. They tried to put my hands behind my back. They were ripping the poster away from me. And so it was at that point I, I thought, oh, I've come all this way. I've got to try and make sure that this message doesn't get completely lost. And so I yelled out, where is Peng Shui? Where is Peng Shui? This Chinese tennis star has been persecuted by the Chinese government. Why won't Wimbledon say something? That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching and see you tomorrow. Presenting the heritage of traditional Chinese martial arts, promoting martial ethics and reviving the true tradition. The 2022 NTD International Traditional Chinese Martial Arts Competition Preliminaries will be held in New York and Taiwan. On August 28th, the finals will be broadcast live online worldwide. Registration hotline 188-477-9228. For more information, please visit martialarts.ntdtv.com.